My name is Reese, and I'm an elder here at Grace Fellowship. Privileged to be with you this morning and lead us through a section of Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11. So this morning, I want to convince you to become a Philadelphia Phillies fan. If you don't know who that is, that is a major league baseball team from the city of Philadelphia. I grew up there, so they're, they're one of my favorite teams. And if you've been following along with them, and if you're not a fan already, they lost in the playoffs just a couple days ago. So my sermon illustration, it still works. But it would have been a little bit better if they made it to the World Series. But I don't want you to be, become a fan just because they made it to the playoffs, but because their fans did something incredible back in August at a home game. It was something that was amazing, and it transformed a player, a team, and a whole city. But before we get into that story, I need to set the scene because that story helps illustrate what I think the author of Hebrews is trying to get at, at the core. So you have to hold on a minute before we get there. We are in the series of Hebrews, like I said, and the author wants his audience to be encouraged and to know what is at stake. The biggest thing is at stake for them. It is their faith in Jesus, and he's, he's taken us through 11 chapters so far, and I'd say that he is primarily trying to help them to hold on, like we sang, and to not give up on Jesus. And there's two main kind of pitfalls that they could fall off on. One was in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. So there's this potential temptation to just drift away from Jesus. I like to think of it with the word apathy, where distractions could just pull you away because you're not paying attention. The other side of the cliff that they could fall off on is just giving up completely on purpose. In chapter 10, verse 35, he says, so do not throw away your confidence because it has great reward. So they could throw it away or they could just drift away with apathy. A few weeks ago in chapter 10, he kind of brought it together and he talked about how we need as believers to persevere. And then in chapter 11, which was last week, all of those great uh, men and women who lived before Jesus came and the faith that they uh, showed in their life, Ryan talked about, but they had not received what was promised. And that brings us to chapter 12. And here the author will provide two critical solutions to these temptations towards apathy or giving up in your faith in Jesus. And they have everything to do with knowing who is on our side, giving us the strength and encouragement to persevere in faith. If you're looking at the scripture, it's going to be up on the screen. But in verse 1, I'll read it in a second. There's a great cloud of witnesses, which he's referring to in chapter 11. So you have all of these people. Imagine a whole stadium cheering for you, which is great. They've gone before. They're cheering. 
But as we go on in this chapter, and you'll see on the handout, there's two more people the author talks about, which are the best to give us the strength and encouragement to persevere in Jesus. And if you look in your outline, I have them listed there, Jesus the Son and God the Father. And they will help us persevere in the face of temptations to let go of Jesus. So let's read chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read from the NET Bible, which is up here on the screen. And of course, you can use any version that you would like. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. You have not yet resisted to the point of of bloodshed in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not scorn the Lord's discipline or give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he accepts. Endure your suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you do not experience discipline, something all sons have shared in, then you are illegitimate and are not sons. Besides, we have experienced discipline from our earthly fathers and we respected them. Shall we not submit ourselves all the more to the father of the spirits and receive life? For they disciplined us for a little while as it seemed good to them, but he does so, but he does so for our benefit that we may share in his holiness. Now all discipline seems painful at the time, not joyful, but later it produces the fruit of peace and righteousness for those who have been trained by it. He says in verse 1 that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, referring to chapter 11. And he brings up this analogy of a race and that a life of faith is like this race. And a race that we're used to, you probably have seen one or heard of one, there are other participants, there are onlookers watching, There's a start, there's a planned route, and there's a finish line. There's also some hindrances out there for the runners, and they could be all various kinds. And there's also potentially saboteurs trying to affect the outcome of the race. And the author of Hebrews, again, has been warning his audience against those two extremes that I was talking about, and they are found within this race. And so... There are the possibility that they could drift while they're running this race and kind of maybe a distraction takes them off course. And eventually one day they realize I've never, I'm not on the course anymore. Or they just give up completely because they're like tired and don't feel like it's worth it to take another step. And for the Christian, the point of being in this race is to endure a life of faith in Jesus whom in chapter 4, verse 14, he calls the Son of God. So Jesus, the Son, and what he did on the cross will help believers to cross the finish line. In verse 1, he points to uh, two things in particular 
that might hinder the believer in this race. He says we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely. I don't think I need to explain very much of of why you wouldn't want to bring a barbell with you on a race. That would be pretty silly. So you want to get rid of those things that are hindering you from running the race and that might take you off course. He also brings up sin. This is disobeying God. And he says it clings so closely. So this is something that we have to pay attention to and it's going to be difficult to get rid of. It's not just going to be easy. So life is like this race and there are temptations for them and for us not to endure and cross the finish line. If they or we do not do anything about these weights or sin, then it's possible you may not endure. I'm sure you've probably heard of stories of Christian leaders who you may have admired or heard about, but then something happened. They looked good, but now their faith is wrecked and they give up on Jesus. This is why in verse 1, and it applies to everyone, it's the command to get rid of every weight. Get rid of it. Don't play around with it. It could be your downfall. One of these sins that, that clings closely for me is the sin of selfishness. One of the ways that I've been trying to work this out with God's help is in communication with other people. So in communication, I want to try to understand their perspective. I want to listen to them. But the temptation is to get angry, just like let my own feelings dominate or even be silent. Or probably more for me is to kind of lawyer up and give them all these reasons why I'm right, they're wrong. And I'm not really listening to them or a hindrance or a weight that I've realized that I must get rid of is wasting time on the internet. There's too many distractions there. As you look at your own heart and life, what are challenges to your faith or faith in Jesus? What are those weights? What are those hindrances? What are those sins that cling so tightly that you must get rid of? If you don't know what those are, Ask God. Ask other people. I'm sure that they will have ideas for you. So there are many temptations in life to give up on this race of faith. And he goes on in verses 1 to 3 to tell us that Jesus the Son is the solution for enduring to the end. In verses 2 and 3, he gives us two ways to help us endure this life of faith without giving way to apathy or just giving up completely. And he says he's doing this at the end of verse 3, so that you may not grow weary and give up. And those two ways are keeping our eyes on Jesus and our mind on Jesus. First, our eyes on Jesus. Verse 2, he says, run the race, keeping our eyes on Jesus. So I do this a lot with my kids. Can you see me? Keep your eyes on Jesus. He was the one who ran the race on the course, and crossed the finish line. In verse 3, he endured opposition. He faced extreme pressure to give up and to move on to something else, but he didn't. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. The cross involves the torture 
for things that he did not do. A horrible death by, by lack of oxygen and or bleeding out to death. Not to mention all of the shame that he faced for suffering these things that he did not deserve. What enabled him to persevere through this? He says in verse 2, for the joy set before him. And, and when he went through, he, he seated, uh, has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And what he means by taking a seat is mean that it's he's done, it's finished. So the, the audience uh, of Hebrews here, they need to know that they need to keep their eyes on Jesus. And as they do, they'll understand something crucial about who Jesus is that will help them in their faith. And it's in verse 2. It says that Jesus is the pioneer, or in other translations say he's the author or he's the founder, and he's also the perfecter of our faith. So in the race analogy, Jesus got the believer set up. He got him with shoes. He got him with running clothes. He got the little number thing that gets pinned on you uh, and, and everything else that you need to run a race. These runners did not qualify for this race in and of themselves. He qualified to get them there. And if they doubt whether they deserve to be in this race, maybe because of past sin or current struggles, they need to believe that Jesus is the pioneer. He is the author of their faith. They also need to see that he's the perfecter of their faith. You know, maybe in this race, they are tempted that they just can't continue on. Maybe they feel like they don't have the strength or they don't have the will to take another step. Jesus is the perfecter, the sustainer until the end for them. And he is with them step by step until the end. What the author is saying is for them and for us, Jesus has got you covered from beginning to end. The initiative to know Jesus comes from Jesus. And the power to endure a life of faith in Jesus also comes from Jesus. In other words, they didn't earn a spot on this race and they don't have the ability to finish this race, at least on their own. And so they need to keep their eyes on Jesus because he covers both aspects, the beginning and the end of this race. They may be tempted to doubt Jesus' love, or we might be, or the ability to help endure, to him help us to endure. So the author has another application, and this is the second one in verse 3. So we're to keep our eyes on Jesus, we're also to keep our mind on Jesus. In verse 3, he says, think of him who endured such opposition. So there's a command here to think about Jesus, and not just in a, like a vague sense, think about him. Think about his specific thing that he went through, his endurance in the face of opposition. So really, think about Jesus. What's the prime example of his opposition? It's the cross. Think about what he did. 
Think about what he faced. Think about the pain that he endured, the shame of the cross, losing possessions, being called things that he was not, being condemned and tortured for hours for doing nothing wrong. We need to think about him who endured such opposition. And he says, so that you may now grow, may not grow weary in your souls and to give up. Looking at Jesus and thinking about what Jesus went through will help you to endure. Now, how does this work out for us? Uh, I like playing golf. I usually play golf with my dad. That's kind of the only times I play. And when you're playing golf, you probably know this or heard of it. You're supposed to like watch the ball when you hit it. And so if you don't, then you'll probably miss it and you won't be playing very good. Now, the problem with me, and, and I'll just say me because my dad's a good golfer, is that I want to see where the ball is going because it usually doesn't go where it's supposed to. And if I don't watch it, I'll never be able to find it again. And, and so the temptation there is to swing and then quickly look up. And you know what happens is you don't hit the ball. And so my dad and I have this thing. When we golf, we say, look, you just look at the ball. Don't worry about the outcome. I'll watch it for you. And we end up playing better. At least I do. Gang, Jesus is the ball. Keep your eye on Jesus. In him, we don't have to worry about the outcome. We actually don't have to worry about anything at all. He's the author and perfecter, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and he proved his love by going to the cross. As I read these verses here through one through three, it just, it just puts wind in my sails and gives me encouragement. I'm so prone to anxiety and worry, and it would not be unusual for me, just as an illustration here, today is Sunday, it would not be unusual for me to worry about everything that happened on Saturday, everything that went wrong, all the words I could have said different, and then worry about what's going to happen tomorrow on Monday, all those situations I'm going to face, and what can I do to avoid all of those potential pitfalls so that I won't be caught off guard, and I won't have the same problems I did with Saturday's failures. And that can add up and primarily comes out in low sleep because I'm worrying about it all night, you know, crunching through all these things. And over time, unless addressed, it's very easy for me to start facing this temptation that, is this even worth it, this life of faith? The author gives us the solution again. To look at Jesus means, for me, I can give up my anxieties and worries. Consider taking your current struggle, even right now, your current struggle and bringing it to the foot of the cross and look at Jesus. He helps you to endure. How does even thinking of that illustration help you understand your current situation? You may be in your heart and mind focused on your failures, your situations, your anxiety is what will happen to me in life. But you're not looking at Jesus. Jesus looked beyond the cross to the joy set before him. He did not look to the cross. We are not to keep our eyes on our situation. 
but on him. Because our problem is that we focus too much on our situation and ourselves. We need to see Jesus and think of him. Now, to show you the power of looking at Jesus for strength and encouragement, we have a video. And before we start the video, I mentioned at the beginning, I want to convince you to become Phillies fans. Now we're ready. We're ready for this moment. As we watch this video, this is a true story about a Philadelphia Phillies player named Trey Turner. He was a superstar that got signed to the Phillies this year for an 11-year, a $300 million contract. Something shocking happened when he started actually playing for the Phillies this season. And I think that's enough. John, you want to hit the lights? We'll watch this video together. Trey Turner has been slumping terribly. It's been the worst, like, 45-game stretch of his career. I, I've had it with Trey Turner. I mean, I, I, 11 years, $300 million, and he doesn't look like he's worth a, a quarter of that. Ground ball. And it's through Turner. Ground ball to shortstop. To his left is Turner. He boots it. I would have to think that there's something going on in the noggin right now, yeah. Trey Turner. They were just booing this man incessantly. So far this season, he's been one of the worst 20 players in all of baseball. Well, he's never probably played this bad at any level ever. So what in the world is going on? If you're going to a Phillies game this weekend, let's not boo Trey Turner this weekend. Let's give him a standing ovation. The suggestion that's out there is... Trey Turner should get a standing ovation. It's time to address the standing ovation that should happen for, for Trey Turner tonight. What if it does work? And he's in scoring position for Trey Turner. First and second, Turner in a high fly ball to deep left field. He answered their call. It's gone! This will be the first one this year, Tom. The Kurt Cup. Well, he might have one more. That one's deep to left field. It is gone! Fly ball left field, pretty well hit. Richards going back toward the wall. It is It's off the Western Metal Supply. 
I cry every time I watch that. <laughs> Guys, Trey Turner did not deserve that standing ovation. He had failed to live up to his status as an elite player. But that incredible picture of encouragement could not stop changing him. After that standing ovation in August, he did return to his elite status and he helped the Phillies rally to get into the playoffs. He did not gain a new skill after that encouragement. He had already had the skills, but but what he gained was the belief that no matter what, the city was behind him. We are running this race in Jesus, and you and I are tempted to think that we signed up for the wrong team. Perhaps wondering if it's worth it to go any further believing in Jesus. He says to fix your eyes on Jesus. Have your mind on Him. Your past. Your current struggles. You're here. He is with you. Don't give up. The heavenly stadium is filled with these witnesses, and you're at bat. Jesus is in the front row, leading the standing ovation so we could swing away. We could take the next step in the race. We don't know the exact path of this race, but we do know the outcome. Jesus loves you, and you did not earn his love. He endured the cross and is the pioneer and perfecter of your faith so that you will not grow weary in your souls and to give up. As amazing as that is, looking to Jesus and thinking about him and what he did is not enough. For our author goes on to tell us about kind of how, how do we respond to when we experience difficulties and sufferings in life and we're wondering, does God care? Has he, is he still with us? And that transitions us to section number two, verse four. He starts off by saying that you have not yet resisted to the point of blood in your struggle against sin. So this, this struggle is also a picture. So there's a race and there's, there's this maybe wrestling match or boxing match that's going on. And we haven't uh, finished yet. Jesus has finished. He resisted to the point of bloodshed. But we haven't died yet, so we must persevere. And he says that in this fight that we should not lose heart. In verse 7, he says, this is suffering. He is clear about this. And in verse 11, he's also clear that this is painful and it's not pleasant. There are temptations to give up, but he reassures us that in here, in this section, God the Father is with us, and he's actually doing something that you may not expect. 
And the author uses an analogy of a father disciplining a child. Verse 9, he says, we've all experienced discipline from our earthly fathers, so we've all experienced it to some degree. Maybe your parents made you mow the grass when you didn't want to, or they didn't allow you to attend an event that you wanted to go to, or they denied access to something that you wanted to have access to and you're struggling. You're wondering, why are they allowing this to happen? Why are they denying my desires, or why are they even allowing this pain to be there? I think we know the answer. It's so that they, you, the children will grow in character and actually live longer. Here in the passage, he's saying God is doing this with his people. He is treating you as his own children, in verse 7, by disciplining you. And in verse 9, he says, Should we not submit ourselves to the Father of spirits and receive life? It's the Christian who gets disciplined by the Father through the struggles, through the sufferings, so that they may have life. And in verse 10, he says, not only is there life, but that we should get to share in his holiness. So we get to become more like him through this discipline. And he prepares us for glory. Yet there is a warning here in this section, verse 8. And it's primarily directed to those who are not following Jesus or they've left the race. And he says, if you're not in Jesus, you're illegitimate. You are not a son or daughter of the king. And though you might go through the same sufferings as the Christian, those sufferings have no value to you. In fact, they're only a picture of worse things to come. So it's only the Christian who suffers and receives this discipline that brings life from God the Father. He says in verse 11 that this is, um, produces fruit and peace, or fruit of peace and righteousness for those who have been trained by it. So this is a regular pattern of discipline that the believer goes through to make them more like Jesus and God the Father and to have life. There are all of these hindrances and the sin and the opposition from others that are all boiled into the suffering in verse 7. And the Father is using these and this pain, again, to make you more like himself. See, not everyone can say, I want to be like my earthly father. Because maybe your earthly father was bad and terrible and you don't want to be like him. But every believer in Jesus can say, I want to be like my father. And he is helping me to do that. Verse 11, the reward again is clear. You get peace and righteousness through this discipline and training. You have probably seen this principle at work in your life. Where you've gone through a hard thing and you look back and you say, wow, I really learned a lot from that. 
I think of the time when I went through a very difficult roommate situation or a time of deep depression. In the moment, I hated those things. I wanted to get out of them so badly. But now as I look back, I see how God used those things to change me. And I needed to go through those things, even though I would not have put any of you guys in those situations. I needed to go through those. God is using our suffering for our good. How does this help us to persevere in this fight? In verses four and, or five and six, he quotes Proverbs three. And he says, do not disdain or scorn the Lord's discipline. Don't let suffering be the excuse for you to give up because he's correcting you. So it's a key to persevering when you have suffering in your life. Whatever you identify as suffering is to look at the suffering through God's eyes as disciplining you. Now, you can label anything as suffering. Maybe you lost a $20 bill. Maybe someone makes an offhand comment that hurts your feelings. Maybe someone steals for you, steals from you. Or worse, you have a uh, health issue or a financial issue that's debilitating. The Christian is not allowed to look at those circumstances and say, see, this is proof God doesn't love me. No, the opposite. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he accepts. So should we rejoice like, I'm happy this suffering has happened to me? Happy I got swindled or happy my feelings got hurt? I don't think that's what he's saying. He says, this is painful. I think what he's saying is that when we go through those things, our perspective on it is crucial. When we face sufferings, we are to acknowledge that God is disciplining us. We may not know why. Just like a child has no idea when you tell them no to unlimited candy. They're like, what gifts? What's wrong with you? So in faith, we must say something to the effect of, God, you know this pain I'm going through, this suffering. I know that Jesus went through far worse But what I'm going through is still painful. Help me to see things from your perspective. Or ponder, God, what might you be doing here to change me in this situation? I'm going through this right now uh, with my knee. I tore my meniscus about a year and a half ago. And the doctor told me, He doesn't recommend surgery, and there's no clear solution on what to do. Great. God, what are you up to here? How are you disciplining me? What about you? What is in your life? What is the suffering that you are facing? 
how is he getting your attention through these things? How is he potentially using these things to draw you closer to himself? You may not know the answers. But your gaze must be on him and trust in him because we are in a race. We're in a fight. The outcome is secure. Yet the temptation to drift or give up is still there. And I want you to know that Jesus is with you. The Father loves you. And they're both with you. I want to close our time by speaking to those of you who are really at the bottom. Perhaps you feel that life is very dark and you may not even know how to have hope. It might feel to you that you are in a room that is so dark there are no photons in that room. A photon is the smallest particle of light. Like the other utter darkness. And you know the reality is that you don't have another great option to truly deal with this pain. What I want you to know and I, what, what this passage is encouraging is that however you have envisioned your situation without hope, there never is truly a situation without hope. There's never a room without, with no photons in it because there's always at least one. And if there's one, that's Jesus. He is with you, so cling to him. You do not have the strength to carry on, but he does. He is the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. And the Father is working for your good, though you may have no idea how. With these two, you can persevere and have hope. So, gang, let's not give up. Let's pray together and call the worship team up. Father, thank you. Uh, even for this story of Trey Turner, it just gives me a, a, a tremendous picture of the love and support that you give those who follow you. We are so prone to forgetting about the cross, forgetting about what Jesus has done for us, forgetting about the love that he has for us and the support and encouragement and the cheering that goes on for us who did not deserve it and for whom the outcome is not based on. So we have freedom to live, to move, to race, and to fight. Help us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.